0: Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schram's library in Ashland, Ohio. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Very special episode today. We're joined by uh, Ken Starr, uh, who currently serves as of counsel for the Lanier Law Group and is a commentator for Fox News uh, And in fact, last evening, uh, on the Ingram angle, to to talk uh, with his national audience. Uh, As many of our listeners and viewers know, Ken has been a United States Circuit Court judge, the US Solicitor General, uh, independent counsel, and a partner in major law firms. Also served as the dean of Pepperdine Law School and president of Baylor University. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, so good to be with you, Jeff. Thank you for the invitation. Um, Let's start. Your your interest in civic education, you have um, become part of, uh, very graciously agreed to become part of Ashbrook's National Advisory Board on civic education. You're writing now in your most recent book on religious liberty, and you have some discussion in there of the importance of citizens understanding the principles, the constitutional, legal, and moral principles of religious liberty, what has turned your mind and heart toward civic education and educating Americans in these principles. Because
1: of the collapse of civic education in the United States, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. as uh, you have rightly said at the center, quoting Dr. Franklin, it's a republic if you can keep it. And so the principles of the American founding are so precious, they're under assault, but there's also an enormous amount of ignorance, just lack of understanding. Mm-hmm. So we need to return to recapture what I call the culture of freedom, which is what of course America stands for. and that, mm-hmm. That basic principle is really under assault uh, right now. In fact, I had a debate uh, recently or discussion with Dean Irwin Chemerinsky, a brilliant uh, scholar from Cal Berkeley. uh, And uh, we just had a fundamental disagreement that he said for the last half century. And I'm paraphrasing here, and I want to do justice to what Dean Chemerinsky was trying to convey to the the audience, that, that we have set our sights on equality as opposed to freedom. Mm -hmm. And there is, hopefully, congruence between the two, but at times there is tension, Mm -hmm. if not outright conflict, depending upon the issue and the policy response to the question of the day.
0: Right. Um, You've seen it in in your time in American public life. uh, I take it an erosion of understanding of the Constitution, of constitutional principles. Your new book tries to address what you see as a crisis on a core fundamental issue for American public life, which is religious liberty. Tell us about the book, and particularly the genesis of the book and the argument of it. The genesis
1: is probably about... Forty years uh, in the the making. (laughs) Uh When I moved into the Justice Department in the Reagan administration, it really became deeply involved in religious freedom issues, uh, uh, among others. But the catalyst was the pandemic, and when we saw governors Hmm. and mayors taking remarkable action, closing down churches or severely limiting uh, attendance at uh, religious uh, uh, group meetings, Mm -hmm. worship Mm -hmm. services, Mm -hmm. and so forth. I said, I think we need a return to first principles, the principles of freedom, and of course, the religion clauses are the very first part of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof.
0: The book and the argument of the book. For our listeners who will not only want to get a copy and read it, give us a preview, the argument that you're making
1: there. That there needs to be an understanding of six great principles of religious liberty, such as freedom of conscience, and how freedom of conscience Mm -hmm. can in fact carry the day, even when there are other very important values at stake. And so there's a clash of values. Mm -hmm. The idea of the autonomy the independence of religious institutions, including Ah, the ability to hire and fire. Very important now, especially in the days when we're, of course, all sensitive to issues of discrimination and wiping out discrimination, but what happens when there's a conflict between civil rights laws and religious autonomy? And happily, part of my message in the book is. The Supreme Court, time after time over the past 40 years, not always, but time after time, has been the friend of religious liberty, Mm -hmm. including of religious institutions and churches and church leaders, synagogues, mosques. They all need to be aware of these great principles that have been enduringly important in the American constitutional experience.
0: Right. And that's interesting when you think about it, because I think most people would think of religious liberty as an individual constitutional right you're making the argument that it also applies to associations. Exactly of, right. And the Supreme Court
1: reaffirmed uh, that in June of this uh, very year of, mm-hmm. uh, of 2021, in upholding the religious liberty, and they did so unanimously, of Catholic social services to frankly discriminate in terms of the placement of foster children under their care. <laughs> the Catholic social services, consistent with Catholic uh, uh, doctrine, would not place these precious children in Philadelphia uh, in non-traditional homes, <laughs> uh, including LGBTQ homes. That was challenged by the city of Philadelphia. Uh, and the Supreme Court unanimously. So this is a very important principle of the ability of church institutions, to, uh, religious institutions, to carry on their work.
0: That, as you say, has become um, enshrined in American law. It has been at least embraced by the Supreme Court unanimously in this last term. As There's been a number of rulings over time. Scholar, some scholars have argued religious liberty is sort of on a win streak in the last few years on the Supreme Court level, yet as you argue in the book, we see local governments, state governments, uh, other uh, levels of society not quite understanding or appreciating the primary importance of religious liberty, both for individuals and associations.
1: Why is that? Uh, The culture has shifted. Uh, I think the culture began shifting perhaps (laughs) uh, during the Enlightenment. But Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think American culture has taken a dramatic shift over the last 20 years. Perhaps beginning with uh, 9-11, that individuals taking this horrific unspeakable action, in the name what, of religion. And there seemed to be an outpouring of interest in the new atheism and so forth. But I think there are a variety of cultural factors, and one of them, frankly, is the idea of identity. Who is the individual? And sexual identity, gender identity, and Mm -hmm. so forth. These have been part of the forces, the winds that have been blowing, that have, I think, had an enormous uh, effect on, well, if you are uh, a religious person, you're probably a bigot right uh, you engage right. in discrimination you hurt right. people mm-hmm. and so there's a bill pending in congress called provocatively the do no harm act in other words you can hmm. go worship wherever you want to but don't try to bring your values into the marketplace of ideas and this is we've we've sometimes
0: heard this and some of our listeners will be aware the the way that religious liberty is sometimes talked about, I was really intrigued by the fact you call it liberty of conscience, which of course resonates with people like, uh, from the American founding, like James Madison, who also called it that. To think of it as liberty of conscience or or freedom of religion, rather than just simply freedom of worship, it's a broader right. It's a more encompassing right, Uh, a a right to sort of live out one's faith in private and in the public sphere. Is 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 that how you want us in your book to understand? Yes, and I
1: use uh, specific examples. Uh, uh, Wisconsin uh, said all kids have to go to essentially government schools Mm -hmm. until they reach their 16th birthday. The Amish community of Wisconsin, this is 40 years ago at the Supreme Court, once again serving as friend to religious liberty, said no. uh, This community is empowered Mm -hmm. under the First Amendment to say, we're going to take an exit ramp uh, and take our kids out. Not entirely. They only wanted their children, the Amish community, only wanted their children to go through the eighth grade, so they would Uh have the rudimentary (laughs) skills and citizenship and so forth. Uh, But after that, they were very concerned as a community about the secularizing Mm -hmm. effect of the culture and what parent isn't concerned with the effect of peer pressure and so forth. Even if they're secular parents, are saying, boy, there are so many nasty influences uh, out there. Well, homeschooling is an emergence, right, over the last right. generation to what had, was happening in the public schools and the kinds of values that were being transmitted. So I think what we're seeing right now is a high watermark, or maybe it's a low watermark, but a hmm. high watermark of opposition to, uh, to religious faith, especially by the opinion leaders in the culture. You give some thoughts on how to move forward
0: to secure religious liberty for the next generation in the book. What are some of the most important steps that you think needs to be taken?
1: Step number one is exactly what uh, the Ash Book Center is seeking to do, which is education. And that was my purpose in writing the book. I wanted these principles of religious liberty, as articulated by the Supreme Court, to be accessible. Mm-hmm. To a lay audience, right. I was seeing in my mind's eye while writing it a grandpa or grandma, I happen to be a grandfather or grandparents, <clears throat> reading the book uh, to uh, a high school student or even to a middle school student. Yeah. Not just reading it themselves, perhaps as a reminder or refresher course, so to speak, but the transmission. We have a huge, huge responsibility to transmit to the next generation our culture of freedom. and. I don't think we've done a good job. The baby boom generation certainly tried, I think, but now when we see what's happening in the schools, these baleful influences that we see all around us, we have to respond. And this was just one individual's sense of what I can do to try to further and foster the goal of education. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's so, it's so critical.
0: It reminds me of, of Ronald Reagan's farewell address in 1989 uh, talking about the importance of what he called informed patriotism. Mm. Patriotism by itself not is is great, but not enough. People have to understand the mm. principles of the country, and and love them for the because they understand them in order to sustain them. It sounds like the kind of argument you're making.
1: That's what I'm trying to say that we have to. Uh, perhaps make up for what we didn't receive in school with again the collapse of civic education. It hadn't collapsed so long ago when I was in school. I was very when I went to public schools in Texas, mm-hmm. uh, and we learned more than Texas history. We did learn a good dollop of that, but we also mm-hmm. learned the rudiments of uh, of American government and certainly American history. Uh, but uh, again. What we see in the, in the polls that have been taken and the Ashbrook Center is very important in making these, uh, these points uh, that 23% of right. American uh, high school seniors are not proficient in yeah. the basic rudiments of American history. Yeah, yeah it's pretty shocking, actually.
0: And um, this, this book is obviously, it's an issue on your mind and you talk about, I love this phrase that you've got the, the culture of freedom. Uh, it's a really important phrase because sometimes we think of freedom as a, as a legal issue, as a political issue, not simply a cultural issue or not fundamentally mm. a cultural issue. Um, but it seems to me you're right to point to that and, and the effect of, of education in shaping culture. You know, people say politics is downstream from culture, right? Mm. That what shapes culture eventually, of course, shapes politics. This issue of religious liberty has been on your mind, as you said. Um, is it one of the biggest challenges facing America today? Just take a step back for our Mm. listeners more broadly. What are some of the biggest challenges you see for the next generation facing
1: our country? The idea of eradication or compromising of liberty, cancel culture, Mm -hmm. these baleful influences manifest themselves in a variety of ways. No, I disagree with you, and therefore I do not want to hear your Right to speak. Right. I don't want to read what you have to say. In fact, I think the curriculum is, is biased, prejudiced, or whatever. Uh, I don't want to read the history of white oppressors. I mean, you can just keep going. The 1619 Project of the New York Times and so forth. The whole idea that we should become much more racially conscious and aware and so forth. All these things, I think, are divisive. When in fact, we stood at our best, imperfect, to be sure, but that states the obvious. Mm-hmm. Welcome to humanity. Right, Imperfect, to be sure, but we stood for the values of e pluribus unum. Out of many come one. The 50 states, what are we? I remember years ago running into an official of the government of Mexico who said, your country doesn't have a name. And I said, of course we do. We're the United States of America. He said, no, no, that's a description. What's your name? I said, well, I guess we're America. No, 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 you're part of the North American continent. <laughs> but Notice the first word, united. Yeah. United States. We're not the independent and sovereign states, even though they're sovereign elements. We are the United States of right. uh, America. But these forces are meant, I think, to tear us uh, apart, tear us asunder. And, Question: Frankly, the goodness of the principles of the American founding, mm-hmm. and I'm not overlooking slavery. Slavery is an execrable, an unspeakable evil, uh, but it seems to have manifested itself in throughout human society. Mm-hmm. That is, it wasn't invented here, right? But the horrible. Practice was brought here, mm-hmm. but it is a universal, was a universal practice, including the mother country, and it was the mother country that of course engaged in the slave trade which had to be eliminated and so forth. Mm-hmm. The point is let's not ignore that, but let's not say as the 1619 project uh, would have us believe that that really is the fulcrum of American history, that's kind of the, right. that's who we are. No it's not, and so my current research interests by the way is into the independence movement in the United States. What was galvanizing these uh, patriots? uh, And everything that I read, and I'm not a learned historian. I'm like others who read history and love history. Uh, One of the reasons I'm privileged to serve on the uh, National Advisory Board. I love history, and I love Mm -hmm. government, and so forth, always wanting to learn more about it. And what do we learn at every turn? It was about freedom yeah. and it was about rule of law it was about constitutionalism right. and whether the British had violated the Parliament uh, with the acquiescence of King George had violated the British Constitution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. these fundamental foundations and in leading up to the revolution, everyone talked constitutionalism right Everyone talked about the Constitution with the return about the Constitution. Great Britain and the Bill of Rights and so forth. That's who we are. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons that the preface to the preamble to America, it's a preface, but the preamble to America's Constitution, talks about as the ultimate, the sumum bonum, is to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Mm -hmm. Not the blessings of equality, but the blessings of liberty. Mm -hmm. Now, we want equal opportunity for all, but we want liberty, the freedom to innovate, the freedom to March to the beat of our own drummer. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think these cultural forces are saying, no, no, it's only my drummer. That's the only drum that gets uh, to yeah. make any noise. Yeah. So you really see a great challenge for the, next, for the next
0: generation of America, if I'm understanding your argument here, and it's a really interesting and provocative one, is sort of can the, the, the principles that brought this country into being, uh, articulated in places like the Declaration of Independence, embodied in the Constitution, can we sustain our understanding of an attachment
1: to those principles and remain united as one people? And to love these principles, mm. not simply to understand them, but uh, as, as you say on the website, to have affection for these <laughs> principles. Right. Uh, and you don't have to lionize those. We were chatting offline about a particular teacher dismissing Abraham Lincoln right, as a racist. Well, my word. See the fullness of the man, and the fullness of the man, fairly viewed and reasonably viewed, is a a a great humanitarian who was opposed to the scourge of slavery, and who was supportive of General Grant and the effort to bring uh, African American troops uh, into active service and to give them real responsibility and mm-hmm. so forth. The Freedmen's Bureau, right. the appropriate treatment of the newly freed slaves and so forth. These were, these were noble principles, uh, imperfect to be sure. Yeah.
0: Your, uh, it's really amazing that you've, you've developed this passion. I suppose it connects in many ways to your previous work. You have been uh, a member, of course you've been United States Solicitor General, I think argued over 30 cases in front of the Supreme Court. Yes. You have been on the bench itself? Yes. From your time on the bench and arguing in front of the Supreme Court, what's your sense, and being dean of a, of a very prominent law school, what's your sense now of the state of legal education,
1: uh, of, of lawyers and judges' understanding of the Constitution? I think that uh, the legal profession has become like so much of society very politicized. Mm. Uh, I mentioned the Philadelphia case and I'll just use this as an example instead of staying at a high level of generality. Let's do a case study. The American Bar Association filed a friend of the court brief on behalf of the city of Philadelphia and against Catholic social services. Mm. And uh, again, the Supreme Court decided unanimously the other way. So it suggests that uh, the organized bar, and I'm a member of the American Bar Association, participates in its program. Uh, at least the leadership is really out of touch with mainstream constitutionalism. Right, a unanimous, a unanimous opinion. Supreme Court, mm-hmm. but they were on the other side. And why? Because I think the culture uh, war is not wanting to, in any way, countenance as they see it, quote, discrimination. When in fact, what Catholic social services were doing just to stay on, because it's such a powerful, almost parable of the conflict that that is raging in the United States is. We will place children in single family homes of LGBTQ stu- uh, uh, persons. Mm-hmm. We will place LGBTQ children. Mm-hmm. So it's not as if we say we are not going to serve everyone, but we can't, consistent with our Catholic teaching of two millennia, <laughs> place them in non traditional homes. We just can't do that. I mean, in it, it, uh, uh, two person homes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but there it is. There is the Legal education then lends itself into the American Bar Association, and so forth. Mm. So uh, I think uh, much too much of legal education is, uh, is deeply politicized. Yeah. Uh,
0: I guess on the other hand, the welcome news, at least for the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court, I think a lot of our listeners would, would think or wonder, has there been a resurgence of constitutional, I'll call it constitutional conservatism, I don't know if that's the right word, originalism? as a jurisprudence, uh, an approach to understanding law and the Constitution. Intellectually, there seems to be, have been some revival of that. And politically, we have a lot of, of very sound judges on the court now. What's your take on the state of, of originalism and,
1: and in law and in jurisprudence? I think it's taken very seriously uh, across a wide spectrum of uh, judges and justices. Even justices who would say, I'm not an originalist, or I'm a faint-hearted originalist at best, (laughs) nonetheless have great respect for the founding materials. Uh, You will see uh, the most liberal justices cite the Federalist Papers, right? right? They Mm -hmm. will just say, well, look what Madison said in Federalist 51, or Hamilton said in Federalist 78. So I think it's very healthy, as opposed to, When I was clerking for Chief Justice uh, Warren Berger many years ago, there was a huge uh, fight going on in the legal academy, and even judges became uh, involved uh, in it. And then it reached uh, uh, the the ABG, the apex in the Reagan administration. Right, yeah. When, uh, now so long ago, uh, originalism was dismissed as sort of a quirky, odd, unorthodox. Uh, not really respected train of thought. Uh, and, and so too the idea of the text of a statute passed by Congress, we now use the term textualism, when we take this seriously, we don't just go running to legislative history to see what the sponsors said. Right. And, and these were, by the way, outgrowths, logical outgrowths of reflections on separation of powers. Hmm. If you talk about what the co-sponsor said, and so you give that meaning, well, wait, was that voice heard in the House of Representatives or vice versa? Right. Oh, was that voice heard by the president? Was the president tuning in? And so he said, oh, that's what that means. Okay, bring me my signature pen. Uh-huh. <laughs> or if that's what it means, I'm going to veto yeah. it. Right? Yeah. So the separation of powers, the idea of presentment, we got in some very bad habits in the 20th century, uh-huh. uh, constitutionally. Not taking separation of power seriously, not taking federalism seriously. Both those principles are taken very seriously.
0: Welcome news. It is welcome, welcome, news. welcome news. Rediscovery. Right. Right. W- w- very welcome news. Um, now, we're
1: seeing this play out, by the way, in the mandates. I mean, whatever one's position is on vaccinations. Uh, I'm fully vac- vaccinated, and uh, I have no moral uh, religious objection to it. To me, it's just the right thing to do as a matter of uh, individual liberty mm-hmm. <laughs> and, 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 and choice. But these mandates wildly exceed the, the Biden mandate, uh, the OSHA mandate. I, in my judgment, wildly exceed Congress's authority. Uh, uh, if, if Congress tried to do it, I think it would be a serious constitutional question on the Commerce Clause. But the statutes under which they're operating, they being OSHA mm-hmm. and now CMS and the latest uh, iteration of uh, vaccine mandates, these are illegal virtually on their face. Mm-hmm sort of yes. dead on arrival by, right. by my reading. Right. Now, watch <clears throat> me be proven wrong. I've been proven wrong any number of <laughs> we'll times. See if, if- but I know my position at least is grounded in fundamental principles of the Constitution. And so why do we stray from those? And I think that's a serious question. President Biden, Attorney General Garland, why are you authorizing these kinds of, well, we get to test them in the courts. But why are you authorizing it when it right. seems to be so blatantly unconstitutional under the Commerce Clause and and, and anti-textual under the Social Security Act. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very
0: important point, that the the executive branch, the president, the attorney general, are themselves constitutional officers who should be taking their own duty to interpret the Constitution very
1: seriously. They took an oath. And so it's so serious that the Justice Department uh, has an ancient uh, practice, uh, ancient by um, U.S. standards, that it will not defend certain acts that Congress passes, even though the Justice Department, as part of the executive branch, is duty bound to execute faithfully execute uh, the law. But still, in all, the Justice Department will say, "No, we have a higher duty to the Constitution, and this statute violates the Constitution in our view." Hmm. Hmm. You have had, I mean, those. <clears throat>
0: you have had such an interesting and varied career in public life. Uh, you have been in leadership of higher education. You've been involved in the judicial branch at, at the highest levels. You've been in the executive branch in the highest levels. We've got a lot of listeners to the American idea who are young people, mm-hmm. who are very interested in a career in public life and thinking mm-hmm. about this. Over your long career in public life and your experience, Give us some advice uh, about what those young people should be thinking about if they're considering
1: entering public life. A substantive point and then a skills point. The substantive point is not original, it's drawn uh, from uh, Winston Churchill uh, study history. Ah. And then he repeated <laughs> I like it. the sound of that. <laughs> study history uh, and keep studying history because it's this endlessly deep well of wisdom and, uh, and, and, and guidance. And then on the skill set, work on communication skills, uh, both writing uh, and verbal, uh, and wean yourself from the uh, current uh, kind of inarticulate uh, conversation in a business setting, speak however you want with your, your friends, but just become a much more effective communicator mm-hmm. verbally. Uh, and that means not having the kinds of like pauses not and you, like <laughs> and you know kinds of things. It's just it's, it's self discipline uh, mm-hmm. as well as just uh, habit. Uh, b- but uh, years ago, I saw a fantastic interview when television was a little bit more serious. CBS uh, would interview these very serious people Hugo Black, Justice of the Supreme Court, William O. Douglas. Justice of the Supreme Court. And they interviewed uh, John J. McCloy. Who the heck is that? Well, John J. McCloy was a very distinguished lawyer and public servant, and the interviewer, Eric Severider, who it was, a name lost uh, in the myths of history, uh, said, you have a reputation as an excellent writer. Oh, what's your approach? What's your secret? He said, I go through draft after draft. I've self edit myself. Mm-hmm. I will try to go through, if I can, if I have the time, 10 or 11 drafts to get it right. Mm. Wow. <laughs> so wow. we can all work on communication skills. Yes. <laughs> that kind
0: of uh, discipline, as you say, so important for success in a career in public life. Thank you for those reflections. Thank you for so much for joining us. Thank you again for joining Ashbrook's efforts to bring American history and government across the country in a very sound way to students and teachers. Ken Starr,
1: thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. Subscribe for more at ashbrook.org slash AmericanIdeapod and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AMIdea Podcast. From the Schram Library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Siggins.